All good things must come to an end, and in the 12th century, that included the friendship between King Henry II of England and Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. In this episode of Footnoting History, we continue the tale of the infamously disintegrating relationship to its bloody conclusion, and a bit beyond. Hey everybody, Christine here to complete our story of the friendship-turned-rivalry of Henry II and Thomas Becket. If you skipped our last episode, you should probably stop right here and go back to it so that you can fully understand our cast of characters and how things looked in better times between them. We last left off in 1162 when Thomas Becket, best friend and chancellor to Henry II, was placed through Henry's backing in the position of Archbishop of Canterbury. This effectively made him the most powerful man in the Catholic Church in England. The concept behind this was that Henry knew Becket would do a good job in the position, just as he had done as chancellor, and hopefully the two would be able to navigate crown-church relations together as a team. The future looked bright and sunny, but the ink on the paper from the Pope confirming Becket's appointment wasn't even dry when he declared that he was resigning as Henry's chancellor. But I thought they were going to work together, I hear you incredulously shout. Well, Henry probably shouted the same thing, because it blew his mind too. He had no idea that this was coming. After all, Becket knew that his plan was for them to work together, and it wasn't like their arrangement was without precedent. On the European continent, the Holy Roman Emperor had an archbishop for his chancellor, so why couldn't England have the same thing? Well, Henry felt cheated and betrayed by his friend, and yet he still had to work with Becket. Only now he had to do it without any assurances of loyalty. It didn't take long for a series of disagreements to make the situation awkward. Henry and Becket were on opposite sides when Henry suggested that a customary payment given to sheriffs should henceforth be paid into the royal coffers instead of directly to the sheriffs themselves. Becket, who might have agreed that this was a good idea when he was still chancellor, not only didn't agree with it now, but he also rather loudly claimed that he might not pay anything at all. The acrimony between the two was also apparent when Henry and Becket failed to see eye to eye over whether the archbishop could excommunicate, that is to say, cut off from the church's blessings and sacraments, a royal tenant-in-chief without the king's approval. Now, naturally, Henry believed his approval should be required because that had historically been the case, but Becket was claiming full autonomy on the matter. It was clear, quickly, that Becket was establishing himself as independent from his king and former buddy. Although both of these things eventually blew over, they were only two indications of the souring of the formerly buoyant friendship, and the antagonism continued. At one point, Henry stripped Becket of the castles and baronies that he had held when he was chancellor and left him only with Canterbury. He also removed his son, Henry the Young King, from Becket's care. Becket also took pointed action. When Henry wanted his younger brother William to marry a countess who was a well-off widow, Becket declared that because William was a blood relative of the widow's late husband, the relation was too close for him to sanction the marriage. As unusual as that concern might seem today, in the 12th century, marriages were made and broken by declarations of relationship, categorized under the term consanguinity, all the time. 
Sometimes, the church would grant a dispensation that allowed the union to occur or continue despite the relation, and sometimes, like now, it would not. Beckett rendered the final verdict, and Henry was none too pleased. Their most infamous conflict surrounded criminous clerks, a.k.a. members of the clergy who committed crimes, and their status regarding something called benefit of clergy. Benefit of clergy means that a member of the clergy who committed a crime would have to answer to church law in church courts with church sentencing, not to the secular arm of justice, in our case, Henry II's courts. Who exactly qualified for benefit of clergy was rather broadly defined. It was a lot more than just priests and bishops. It involved all levels of clerks, including some who had received training through the church, but were ultimately employed elsewhere. Henry raised the topic of dealing with these criminous clerks at the Council of Westminster in 1163. You see, if you were going to commit a crime, the church courts were where you wanted to be. Their laws weren't very fond of putting bloodshed in their sentences, and the highest form of punishment you were likely to receive was to be degraded from holy orders. The way Henry saw it, a clerk who committed a serious crime wouldn't really care about being degraded because they obviously hadn't cared very much about the position anyway, and because they were supposed to be answering to the highest power, that is God, the fact that they committed a heinous crime was more offensive than if it was committed by a layperson. Henry believed that once the offending person was found guilty by the church and stripped of holy orders, they should then be handed over to his courts and sentenced like the layperson they had just become. Beckett, however, was convinced that this was the church's jurisdiction and Henry should stay well out of it. And on top of that, it would be punishing the person twice for the same crime. To him, the only way someone who once had benefit of clergy should be tried before a secular court was if the person was degraded to lay status, then committed a second crime, this time as a lay person. Henry didn't like this at all. This was like saying that a clerk could poison his neighbor, get degraded, then poison another neighbor before having a very unpleasant, secular, possibly fatal, sentence put down on him. Two poisonings when there could have been only one. He wanted the church courts to do what they would normally do and then pass the big offenders off to him for additional sentencing. Beckett wanted to retain independence in dealing with the clergy and to keep church law as the highest authority for their punishments. The bishops backed Beckett on this. That show of unity made Henry concerned about the level of loyalty church clerics had for him. So he asked them if they agreed to abide by the customs of the realm that existed under his grandfather, King Henry I, because that was who he was modeling much of his rule after. Becket and the bishop said sure they would, but saving our order. If ever a phrase at that point gave Henry nightmares, surely this was it. Saving our order basically amounted to saying, yeah, sure, we'll obey you, as long as it doesn't conflict with our obligations to the church or our consciences regarding religious matters, it was hardly the complete declaration of loyalty that Henry sought. The two men did seek to reconcile, having a private discussion where Becket admitted that despite his respect for Henry, God must now always come first. He had truly thrown himself into his new role just as he had once done as chancellor. It took some time, but a combination of correspondence with bishops and the Pope 
eventually convinced Beckett that the best thing to do was to soothe relations by submitting to Henry, who they now assured him would promise never to make them go against their beliefs. This way, they could all move on with their lives. Beckett eventually agreed and told Henry as much, and that was all well and good, but Henry thought that a public defiance required a public apology, and it was decided that Beckett would officially submit before his bishops and Henry's barons at the next council, which took place at Clarendon in January of 1164. At Clarendon, it turned out that just Beckett's word wasn't enough to get Henry's trust. The king presented the archbishop and bishops with what became known as the Constitutions of Clarendon. This was a written document consisting of 16 clauses that outlined the customs Henry wanted to solidify. He was not launching a brutal campaign against the church, but he was trying to safeguard his authority. So, of course, the constitutions did include things like his stance on criminalist clerks and requiring the archbishops, bishops, and parsons to get royal permission to leave the country. In truth, it was probably more shocking that he had written it down than what was actually contained within them. Back in the time of Henry's grandfather, these customs were established by practice, not written in hard copy, and they had all come to Clarendon expecting that Beckett's verbal submission would be enough. This to Henry, though, would cement everything and put it all to bed. To the others, it was an affront, and they stood against it until suddenly, we know not exactly why, Beckett decided that they had to accept it. He almost immediately regretted his decision. Arguing over crown and church jurisdiction might be bad enough on its own, but that same month something else happened. Henry II learned that his brother, the one whose marriage was derailed before it could even happen, had passed away from what was widely rumored to be a broken heart. This did not sit well with Henry. Things escalated further between the king and the archbishop at the Council of Northampton later that year. There, Henry brought up charges against Becket, stemming from a recent incident where Henry summoned Becket and Becket chose not to show up. At Northampton, Henry punished Becket by calling for him to forfeit all of his goods and movables at the king's mercy. Everyone there knew it was a harsh verdict for the first-time offender, but this was how far their relations had fallen apart. Henry didn't finish there. He brought up other charges like embezzlement, ranging back to Beckett's time as chancellor. Beckett met Henry's attempt at a takedown with his own dramatic, ostentatious flair. He showed up to meet the king, carrying his archiepiscopal cross like a sword, loudly declaring that it gave him the protection of God, because of course he did. This outrageous display did not win him any favors, and I'm pretty sure no one was shocked that Henry opted out of meeting with Beckett. What would have happened if they both cooled down and talked to each other, we will never know, because Beckett didn't wait to find out. He fled to France, putting himself in self-imposed exile, and by leaving the country without Henry's permission, we all know that he was in direct violation of the constitutions of Clarendon. While in France, Beckett went to visit the Pope, where he once again pulled out all the stops. He emotionally resigned from his position as Archbishop of Canterbury, attributing his problems to the fact that he was chosen to be Archbishop by a king and not the clergy, and he offered up his archiepiscopal ring as a sign of his resignation. 
the Pope was moved by Becket's display and reconfirmed him as Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, by doing this, nobody could view Becket as having not earned his position properly, and he was safeguard against any attempt from Henry to unseat him. At this point, I'm sure you can guess that when Henry learned of this, he struck back. He promptly dispossessed any of Becket's family and friends left in England. Those two certainly would not be hunting and laughing together again any time soon. The Pope and the French king tried to negotiate between them, but it was pretty much always fruitless, with Henry and Becket taking turns sniping at each other. I'll take this from you, I'll excommunicate you, that sort of thing flying back and forth. But in early 1169, it appeared like it might be possible to force a reconciliation. Except neither man was willing to publicly look like the one who lost. Becket agreed to make the first move. And it set everybody up to feel like, you know, this is the moment. Everything's going to be set up and go okay. But much to the dismay of the mediators, he at the last minute threw in saving the honor of my God, which was not that far off from saving our order. And it only angered Henry all over again and threw the negotiation process back to square one. Now, later on, while back in England, Henry decided that he was going to achieve something he had wanted for a long time. He wanted to see his eldest son crowned king, partly as a means of securing the succession while he was still alive to witness it. Some of you may remember that I chronicled that story specifically in our episode, A Royal Son, Henry the Young King. With Becket in France and out of favor, Henry figuratively slapped him by circumventing the tradition of having the coronation conducted by the Archbishop of Canterbury. And instead, he had his son crowned by the Archbishop of York in June 1170. Take that, Thomas Becket. Needing Becket to crown Henry's son, was basically the last big piece of leverage that the church had over the king because they knew he wanted to see his son crowned and they knew that having the Archbishop of Canterbury do it was like the real way it was done. But since Henry had it done by the Archbishop of York, this leverage was kind of, you know, gone. Once the coronation was complete, Henry offered to discuss peace, saying that Becket could come back to England. After all, he hadn't really been kicked out in the first place. He left on his own and his property of Canterbury would be returned. Henry also agreed that the young king could be re-crowned by Becket. Now, nobody at this point pressed those constitutions of Clarendon because it seemed like things might work out and it was very fragile. Once the details were sorted, years after entering self-imposed exile, Thomas Becket returned to England. A period of reconciliation and healing should have started. But instead the other shoe dropped. After Becket was back, Henry learned that he had not entirely won this whole situation because Becket had excommunicated the Archbishop of York and the other bishops who participated in the coronation of the young king. One slap begets another. You may be familiar with the exclamation, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Or sometimes, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? Or, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Choose your word. This is the historical moment when Henry II is attributed with having said that, though we can't possibly know if he actually did. What we do know, he was angry and ranting, much like he always did when he felt betrayed or duped. 
Only this time, four knights in Henry's entourage picked up and went to Canterbury to see Thomas and solve the problem for him. They approached Becket with no real known plan other than, hey, we need to make this archbishop submit, but it didn't end with verbal sparring. Finding the archbishop unwilling to bend to their demands during a confrontation at the altar, the knights killed Thomas Becket. That's right, they killed him. The date was December 29th, 1170. Just like that, Becket was gone, and the conflict was over, but in a horrible, bloody way. Becket's death immediately launched him to the status of martyr, and all eyes went to Henry. The king worried the pope would put the country under interdict, basically banning all practice of religion in England. So he kept himself too busy to meet with the legates from him until 1172. Although Henry maintained that he never sanctioned the actions of the knights, he knew his outburst was the catalyst. He agreed to a laundry list of tasks to make amends that included a formal penance done at Canterbury and giving his peace to Becket's followers. Slowly, he re-established himself in the church's good favor, earned the cooperation of the clergy in England, and ruled until his death in 1189. Meanwhile, Becket's death was, of course, not the last anybody heard of him. Not only did the Pope excommunicate the men who murdered him, but Becket, now viewed as a martyr to the faith, was made a saint in 1173. Canterbury's importance as a place of pilgrimage rose, and a shrine was built that remained there until King Henry VIII had it dismantled in the 1530s, although it was later replaced with one that you can still visit today. Henry II and Thomas Becket were two incredibly strong-minded and insanely stubborn men with more pride than could peaceably coexist when they weren't on the same team. Their tight friendship turned into an epic battle of wills with a tragic ending. And to this day, historians and theologians continue to take sides and re-examine what happened. Did a bitter king take down a faultless holy man? Or did a self-centered upstart betray his royal best friend? Were they both to blame? or maybe neither of them? Or were they simply humans caught up in something that spiraled out of control? Ask 10 people and you'll get 10 different answers. What's yours? This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.